chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1, and um, I was talking to a friend over the weekend that keeps track of all the sermons through the internet connection. Um, they live out of town, and um, I was communicating with them that, you know, I've, I have no idea how many sermons I've, I've preached. I've, I've been preaching since I was a teenager, and I'm 51 now, and um, Sometimes, you know, nine to 13 times a week now, I, I preach or teach a, a lesson or a sermon or something from God's Word. But I personally have never preached anything more that has had greater impact on my life than what the Lord has led us to um, during this season uh, together. And um, in addition to that, he's he's kind of showed me at least a, a little different way um, even to present these things. And so uh, for those of you who've heard me preach for years now, you know that there's a little different flow to this. But I think it's something that the Lord is wanting to really build into our lives. The book of Isaiah says that truth is built into our lives line upon line, precept upon precept. So the idea is that one line rests upon another. You with me? One line rests upon another, and then another, and then another. As I've said many times, it's like laying brick. Um, you have to lay them line upon line. One line lays upon the next. And so as we go through this, this, this truth that Father's wanting to make us more and more aware of, I want you to notice how he's doing this line upon line. He's building something in us. And it's not just an awareness. It, it begins with an awareness. Do you understand what I mean by that? You, You've got to view it before you can do it. I mean, you've got to see it before you can be it. In other words, he always opens our eyes to it. And then if we, keep, if we keep focusing on that thing that he's opened our eyes to, the Bible says because it's from him, it has the power to transform us. It has the power to remake us. It has the power to produce things and change things in us that can't be produced or changed any other way. Amen. So... Without a whole lot of comment, I know we've, we've kind of commented on these verses a lot. I'm going to try just to get straight to it this morning. But let's begin at 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. Now, what we know from the Scriptures, especially the New Testament Scriptures, is that in order for someone to be born again, someone has to present to them the gospel message. And the gospel message just simply means the good news. Amen. So there is preaching and there is teaching. I believe, you know, every time we're together, um, it's important for there to be a combination of the two. Preaching is simply a proclamation. It is, it is proclaiming good news to someone. Amen. So a lot of times, you know, and I remind the counselors that I work with of this often, um, if we're not careful, we can get caught up in counseling, only giving advice instead of announcing the good news 
that whatever it is that you've come to me for counseling for, Jesus, I got good news for you, Jesus has already worked it out. So that's, the, that's announcing the good news, right? So preaching is simply proclaiming or announcing the good news. Teaching is explaining how that good news impacts your life, how to take the Word of God and understand it and apply it to your life, how to do the things that we've now been recreated in Christ Jesus to do. So what we have here, of course, is when John says, what we've seen and heard, we declare to you, right? That's what the original um, disciples, that's what the original apostles did. As a matter of fact, some of them were not highly educated or even very educated men at all. And they kept getting in trouble for telling people about Jesus, proclaiming the good news of, of who Jesus um, is, what he's done for them, and the difference it can make in their lives. They preached that. They proclaimed that. They told anybody and everybody that would listen to them okay, about that. And when they would get in trouble, the, the authorities would arrest them, throw them in prison sometimes, threaten to kill them, threaten to beat, even did beat them, right, at times. And they would, they would basically say, now don't go do this anymore. And they say, look, whether what we're doing is, is right or wrong in your sight or not, all we know to do is tell people what Jesus has done for us. And if that's wrong, God will be our judge. In other words, because they knew they weren't wrong. Amen. But that was basically, they were saying that's all we know to do. And as they shared that message, right, people would be born again. They would hear the message. Now what we know later, this was before any of this was delivered in such eloquent terms through um, the Apostle Paul, is that he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. So the, there's power in the message for someone to be born again. And how many times have we heard Brother Jerry Odell say it? It's not the messenger, it's the message. Amen? He stands on platforms all around this world, some of the most dangerous places on planet Earth right now, some of the most hostile places to Christianity on planet Earth right now. He will stand on a platform in a crusade field with thousands of people, and he will tell the message. He will proclaim the message, and people will be born again by the thousands because the power is in the message, right? Now, this is John's version of what Paul said in the first part of Romans, he's saying what I've witnessed, what I've experienced, what I've seen, what I've heard, I'm now declaring it to you. Amen. In other words, he's telling them the story. He's proclaiming to them the good news. But this time we see it in a different context. This time John says, I'm declaring this to you. I'm telling you what I know. I'm telling you what I was told to tell you that you also may be, it doesn't just say saved. It doesn't say that you also may be forgiven. That you also may become a new creation. That you also may receive the gift of righteousness. That you also may be born again. That you also may escape hell and have heaven as your eternal home. That you, no, that's not what it says, right? He says that you also may have fellowship. That you also may have fellowship. Now, I think what we're seeing here is the development of the revelation. In, in other words, let me, let me try without being too, uh, praise God, 
too long on this subject, right? God being revealed to, to man is progressive through Scripture. What do we mean by that? We mean that, that we know more about Him and His person today than they did in the days of Abraham, even in the days of Moses. Moses was the first person on planet earth that God revealed to him, other than of course Adam and Eve before they sinned, that he was the one and only God. Abraham believed in a living God, but there were many gods. It wasn't until Moses that God says to Moses, Moses, I am, and there are no others. Okay, now that seems hard for us to even put together, rationalize in our minds. But again, I'm showing you how what we know and understand about God develops through Scripture. And one of the ways that developed is that at different points in Scripture, God would reveal Himself to mankind by identifying Himself with another name. He would use a different name for Himself. So when He identified Himself as Jehovah Sidkenu, He was identifying Himself as our righteousness. El Shaddai, the God who provides. Are you, are you, Jehovah Shalom, the God is, is our peace. So in each one of these new introductions, new, new uh, identifications, identity that He gave to His people, He was revealing more about Himself. Amen. Now, we have the wonderful luxury of knowing the truth that's contained within everything that came after the first four Gospels in the New Testament. For instance, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they contain for us who Jesus was, why He came to this earth, and what He did for us, and of course His teachings. It's the epistles, the part that comes after that. Epistles, a fancy word for letters. The letters that were written by the apostles. It's those letters that reveal to us why Jesus did what He did and what it means, what God intended for it to do for you and me. Think about it for a moment. If we only And Jesus even said in the Gospels, there are so many more things that I have to explain to you, but you're in no position to receive them or bear them, take them and run with them yet. But after I go, the Holy Spirit will come and He will teach you, reveal these things to you, lead you and teach you into all truth. So what am I offering to you? I'm offering to you that here we have the elder statesman of the church wrote the Gospel of John, understood Jesus' best friend, understood you know, so many things, and now his life experience has taken an invitation, the message of the gospel, from hear it and be saved, hear it and be forgiven, hear it and be born again, hear it and have your sins removed, hear it and go to heaven, to hear it and have fellowship. Hear it and have fellowship. Hear it and have fellowship. This isn't just about a fire escape. This isn't just about missing hell. This isn't just about being forgiven so you can feel a little bit better about yourself for the things you've done wrong. This is about being completely, radically, totally transformed in Christ Jesus in order to have fellowship with Jesus and with His Father. The same fellowship that Jesus enjoys with His Father. That which we have seen and heard, verse 3 again, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. We said last Sunday morning, the same fellowship, because John and Jesus were close. People were envious of that. John's like, 
I don't have a corner on the market of that. In other words, I don't, I don't, I'm not the, in other words, it's not like he's hoarded it and it's something that's only for him. He said, you can have fellowship with us. Meaning the same kind of fellowship that John has with Jesus and that Jesus has with his father, we're invited into that as well. In these things we write to you that your joy may be full. This, this is where the joy is. Come on now. Fellowship is where the joy is. Fellowship is where the fulfillment is. Fellowship is where the satisfaction is. Praise God. Praise God. All right, I'm going to run through these things. Some of you have heard these things more than once, but amen. This is how the Lord's told me to do it, and this is how we're going to do it. Amen. So, number one, you were created by God for fellowship with Him. Fellowship with God is the highest and best purpose for man. Nothing is more important to him, and therefore nothing should be more important to you. Any other purpose, gift, calling, or reason for your existence is not only secondary to your fellowship with God, it is dependent upon it. Fellowship with God is why you exist. Your life will never make sense or be what it was meant to be without fellowship with him. You were created by God in light of this fellowship purpose, meaning your purpose preceded you. God didn't create us and then try to decide what we were going to do or what he created us for. He had a purpose in mind and then created us in light of that purpose so that we could fulfill that purpose. You were created by God in light of this fellowship purpose. You were created in his image and likeness just a little bit lower than God himself to make this fellowship possible. Sin separated us from fellowship with God and caused us to fall short of his highest and best for us. And of course, Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, the Lord's helping us with something, and I want you to let him help you, and I want, him, I, want, I want to let him help me. For too long, we've tried to understand this, believe this, act on this, live according to this, based upon what it means to us only. What it means to us only, without ever considering how our being separated from God by sin affected him we have at least some good idea of how sin affected us what sin separated us from we have inward appetites for things like acceptance security identity significance purpose we crave those things this is why Jesus said man doesn't live by bread alone this is why Jesus said um, listen to me and let your soul feast on abundance. Hear what I have to say to you and live. In other words, he's saying that he is the one who will satisfy these inward hungers that we all have. And when we separated ourselves from him by choosing our own way, we separated ourselves from the only source, the only source, any other source. Todd was talking about this in men's class this morning. Any other source we, we go to to try to satisfy these inward hungers of the heart is, is going to be futile at best. In other words, it, it's only going to lead us down a pathway to destruction. 
So we are becoming more and more aware of how the sin that separated us from God has impacted us and, and made negative, uh, you know, all kinds of negative and dysfunctional behaviors, you know, propping up whatever in our lives. But I don't think we've ever really understood how it's affected our, our Heavenly Father and His heart because He loves us. He, he longs for us. You, were, you exist for fellowship with Him. Sin made fellowship with Him impossible, caused us to fall short of our highest and best life. But it also meant that now Father can't have the fellowship with you that He longs to have with you and created you for. Amen? You follow me on that? So let's keep rolling. God's eternal desire for fellowship with us is evident throughout the Word of God in spite of the sin that made fellowship impossible. I know you got these, some of you heard me comment on these already, is we're just, again, line upon line. But in this section of this, in this section of this, my prayer is that we would look closely at the evidence. God didn't just sit on His throne in heaven, holler down to us every now and then, I love you. You guys are something else. Keep up the good work. Those of you who are struggling, try harder. No, that's not it. Man. He, he loves you. He has an eternal desire in His heart to have fellowship with you. Now, that's a big statement. And so I'm trying to show you the evidence that supports the statement. Okay, so the, the statement is God has an eternal desire for fellowship with you, with me, with us. So how, how is that, where is there proof? How is that possible and where can we find proof for that? Well, I think the first and glaring evidence of that is that we see throughout the Word of God, He kept on pursuing us and trying to be as close to us as possible in spite of the sin that made the fellowship impossible. Number two, God's eternal desire for fellowship with us is evident throughout the Word of God and is only magnified by His continued pursuit of us and willingness to endure our rejecting Him, turning away from Him, forgetting Him, and desire for things other than Him. Think about that. Think about the evidence now. Think about what, I'm, think about what the Lord's saying to us, what the Holy Spirit's saying to us. If you've ever questioned God's desire for fellowship with you, stop and ask yourself, why does he keep on coming as many times as we keep on giving him the hand? Why does he keep on coming as many times as we turn our backs on him and walk away from him? Why does he keep on reaching? Why does he keep on pursuing? Why does he keep on loving? Why does he keep on helping? Why does he keep on bailing you out? Why does he keep on being there? If, if he has no desire to be with you, if he has no desire for you, obviously by now we would have given him a strong enough message to just leave us alone already. But he hasn't left us alone already. And it's not just because he pities you. It's not just because, well, he's God and, and you know, he's the big, he's the, he's the big man and, and we're just the peons and he owes us. No, it's more than he just pities you or owes you something. He loves you. He doesn't just feel sorry for you. Number three, God's eternal desire for fellowship with his people is undeniable and can only be described as a deep, passionate longing within him begging to be 
fulfilled. God's eternal desire for fellowship with His people is evident in the lengths He has gone to and the incredible price He paid to eliminate once and for all the sin that made fellowship with Him impossible. I know that there are all kinds of beliefs in the body of Christ today about salvation and once saved, always saved, or if you sin after you're saved, are you not saved anymore, are you still going to hell, how much is too much, is it just one sin, is it one really bad sin? See, people are all over the map trying to figure these things out, trying to sort these things out. All again looking at it from our perspective. Some of the strongest evidence that exists for God's eternal desire to have fellowship with you is found in what Jesus did for us and the thoroughness and the completeness of what he did for us in order to establish that uh, fellowship and it be uh, impossible to break it. Okay? See, we've gotten in such a habit of looking at everything in light of heaven and hell. Because for many of us, when we heard the good news for the first time, it was put within that context. In other words, get saved or go to hell. And it's like, well, who wants to go to hell? So we'll give this saved thing a try. That's, that's the way a lot of people come to Jesus. Now, I'm not saying question your salvation if that's how you came to Jesus. Because the Bible says, if you call the name of the Lord, you're saved. You know, all this stuff about you got to tear, you didn't really mean it, all this stuff. Man, let me, Jesus made it so easy. Right? He did all the heavy lifting. You just got to be willing in a moment to cry out to him, and he's there. Okay? All right? But because it was presented to us in that context, we think that's what the whole thing's about. We think the Christian life is trying to do good enough to make it to heaven one day when we die. Right? I tell those in addiction recovery all the time, how you define recovery will determine how you go about it and when you think you got it. Listen to me now. If you define addiction recovery as putting clean urine in the cup for 90 days, you go about that different than what we do down at the foundry. The foundry's definition of recovery is a permanently transformed life. If you just want to put clean urine in the cup for 90 days, you go about that one way, but if you want a permanently transformed life, you go about that a whole different way. Because it comes down to how you define it, right? So for so many people, we've defined being saved and being a Christian as being an American and going to heaven. That's, that's, what, that's all we think about, right? Trying to be good, and some people take it way too far. You know, some people go to church all the time, some people read their Bible, you know, that's what we hire a preacher to do, all that stuff for us, right? So that, in other words, that's the mindset that many people have. So if that's how you define it, then that will determine how you go about it and when you think you got it. But what if we were to radically redefine Christianity for what it really is? Christianity for what it really is is fellowship with God. Christianity for what it really is is not trying to live up to a standard, but having the standard come live inside of you and live through you. Christianity is not about trying to do good and not do bad. Christianity is about doing the works of Jesus. See, now if that's how you define Christianity, guess what, Jack? You go about that differently than you go about trying to get to heaven one day when you die. 
Are you following what I'm saying? So when Jesus came and offered one sacrifice for all sin for all time, so that when you and I come to Him, sin will never interrupt our fellowship with Him and the Father ever again. If you try to understand that based upon you being worthy of it, you uh, somehow being good enough to deserve it, you somehow paying enough money to... Listen, you, you know, some kind of religious argument, somebody will always come and tell you, you, there's no place in the kingdom for that kind of behavior, so you can't be in the kingdom, blah, blah, and you'll miss completely why He did it in the first place. He did it so that you could have fellowship with Him. So that He could clean you so thoroughly inside that He could come live inside of you and not be offended anymore. So that sin would not cause the Holy Spirit to have to depart from you like He departed from David. A once for all sacrifice. We looked at all the verses last Sunday night. I'm not going to go over them all again. But the last one says this in verse number 25 of Hebrews chapter 7. Therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Romans 6.10 says Jesus died once for all. Hebrews 7.27 says that um, what he did for us, he did once for all when he offered himself. Hebrews 9, 11, and 12 says that he again poured his own blood out on the altar once and for all. Hebrews 10, 10 through 12, again, once and for all, one sacrifice for sins forever. Verse 12, Hebrews 10, 14, one offering perfected forever those who are being sanctified. You are a perfect work in progress. Then we come to Hebrews 7.25. Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. What does it mean to be saved to the uttermost? It means until the completion of all, until every day is past, thoroughly, completely, wholly, entirely, forever. Anybody here saved to the uttermost? I've been saved to the uttermost. Meaning what? I've been saved into the completion of my days on this earth. That's really more than that. Because the completion of all will never end, right? It's, it's, it's eternity. So that's where the forever part comes in. I've been saved thoroughly. I've been saved completely. I've been saved wholly, entirely, Forever. One sacrifice for all sins for all time. You'll never understand it until you understand fellowship and Father's eternal desire for it. Here's a slide. Are you ready? God's amazing gift of grace to you will never be understood or properly respected until you understand His eternal desire for fellowship with you. We've tried to understand grace by asking, what does this mean for me? What is in this for me? Why did he do this for me? Start asking, what does this mean to him? Why did he do it in light of the desires that are in his heart for you and me? What do his actions say to us about 
His longing for us. God's eternal desire for fellowship with His people, one more evidence, you ready? Is evident in that the incredible price He paid at great personal sacrifice and expense to Himself did not guarantee restored fellowship, but only made it possible for anyone who would choose it. Do you think about that for a moment now? He did what he did to make fellowship with him possible without any guarantees that we would take him up on his offer. It's one thing to say to somebody, hey, now look, I'm, I'm going to do this for you now, but I'm just making sure that in the future you're going to pay me back, right? Look, now, I'm doing, I'm doing this for you now, but I, you know, I want some kind of guarantee from you that if I stick my neck out, you're going to do what the judge says. Are you following what I'm saying? In other words, that in and of itself is a pretty, pretty big sacrifice. In other words, to make that kind of effort for somebody to really sacrifice or put some money on the line or whatever. But, you know, it's like we're looking for, you know, something in their eyes, something in their body language. You know, you, you're going to make good on this, right? What does it say to us about his eternal desire for fellowship with us when he paid the price that he paid just to make fellowship possible without a guarantee that it would happen? Fellowship with him is still your choice, but remember, a great price was paid to make that choice available to you. Without Jesus doing what he did for you, fellowship with God was off the table and impossibility. Listen to this next statement. This makes your ability to choose fellowship with Him the most expensive choice you will ever have the opportunity to make. If a parent says to a child, if you want to go to college, I'll pay for it. Well, obviously, that's a choice that's going to cost somebody some dough, right? So in other words, that's a choice that's, that costs something to be able to make it. You understand? What, are you, I'm not, let me read it again. This makes your ability to choose fellowship with him the most expensive, the most costly choice you will ever have the opportunity to make. You've got an opportunity to choose fellowship but let me tell you something, if he had not paid what he paid, you wouldn't have that choice. If he had not done for you what he did for you, you would not have that choice. So he paid an unimaginable price to give you the choice. That's why it's the most expensive choice you'll ever have the opportunity to make. Here's a good ending point for us today because we're fixing to turn a corner. It's fixing to get gooder and gooder. Amen? While we clearly see God's desire for fellowship with His people throughout the Word of God, the exact kind of fellowship and the far-reaching nature of it does not come into view until Jesus and the New Testament. We see it in the Old Testament. 
We see types of it. We see, we see shadows of it. We see people that God graced with the ability to have um, very close partnership with him, very close um, contact, so to speak, you know, communication maybe with him. Men like Moses, men like Abraham, men like Jacob wrestle with God. You know, we, we see these things in the Old Testament, but it's not until Jesus and the New Testament that we see the magnitude, we see the depth, we see the far-reaching nature of God's eternal desire for us. Because it's the New Testament, are you ready? It's the New Testament from the lips of Jesus himself. God desires to be one with you. One with you. While we clearly see God's desire for fellowship with his people throughout the word of God, the exact kind of fellowship and the far-reaching nature of it does not come into view until Jesus and the New Testament. Matthew's going to come and sing, My Chains Are Gone, to close out the service this morning. I want to leave you with one last thought. God became man in the person of Jesus Christ. How about that for evidence? <laughs> How about that for evidence that he wants to be with us? that he wants to know you and you to know him. How about that? How about that? He sat in our houses. He played with our children. He cried with us. He laughed with us. He ate meals with us. Think about that. Think about that. Then think about what he said in Hebrews. Let me shout it from the throne of the universe. I am not ashamed to call them mine. I am not ashamed to call them my brothers and sisters. Father, you're good to us, and we love you. You're revealing yourself to us, Father, and you're revealing your heart to us. And I thank you, Lord, that we're hearing it and we're receiving it. I thank you, Father, tonight, this morning, rather, that no weapon formed against us. And, Father, I guess I let that slip because I'm already thinking about what you have prepared for us tonight. But I thank you, Lord, that you are showing us who you are in ways, Father, that you intend to make yourself more attractive to us than you've ever been attractive to us before. And we thank you for that. Father, we bless you this morning. We bless you this morning. Oh, Father, glorify your name in this house. Glorify your name in our lives. Glorify your name in our families, Lord. Glorify your name in this family of faith. Beginning of this message this morning, we talked about the gospel. Let me just give you a real quick overview of it, if I could, please.
Jesus was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He committed no sin or wrong of his own. He was falsely accused. All a part of God's elaborate plan. He was sentenced to die an innocent man. What was going on behind the scenes is that when they nailed him to that cross, Father allowed him to step in front of you and me and take a bullet for us. It was our execution that Jesus endured on that day. And while he hung on that cross, the Bible says all of our sin was laid upon him and he paid for it. They took his lifeless body off the cross and buried him in an above ground tomb with a great stone rolled in front of it, sealed with a Roman seal. But three days later, death couldn't hold him. He was raised from the dead for you and for me and the Bible says when he was raised we were raised together with him to newness of life and now he's ascended he sits at the right hand the throne of God beside his father and before he left he said that he would be back and the angels even explained he'll be back in the same manner in which he left he will appear one day for those who are ready for him he did all of this for you so that you could have fellowship with him and he with you. This morning, if you've never accepted Jesus, if you never received for yourself what he did for you on that cross and would like to, I just, with heads bowed, just if you just raise your hand. Pastor, that's me. Never been born again. Never been born again. Amen. Amen. All right, let's stand together this morning. I think the song Matthew's going to sing may be among the most recognizable to you personally that he sung this morning. And, of course, feel free to sing along with him. Praise God.